DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome, neighbors, to the Bitter Southerner podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting and the magazine I edit, The Bitter Southerner. My name is Chuck Reese, and you're listening to the third episode of our second season. My good friend John T. Edge of the Southern Foodways Alliance once told me that food on the table among people ought to provoke conversation about where that food came from. You reach for the okra, for instance, and suddenly you have a reason to talk about the African roots of the South. And the moral of John T.'s story is that reconciliation is what comes from conversation. And that conversation is always easier over good food. But bound up in many iconic Southern foods is our history and truth as Southerners. There are our precious memories of growing, cooking, eating, and sharing them. But there are also the unavoidable truths about how the white planters of the South depended on enslaved human beings and put a higher market value on the slaves who had particular expertise in how to bring those iconic crops out of the ground. It was true for peanuts, for rice, and for many others. When it comes to okra, there are many stories about how it got to the New World, but none of them are confirmable. So we really only know for sure two things about how okra got to North America. One, the plant is not native to the North American continent. And two, it got here at about the same time enslaved Africans were being brought here 400 years ago. Now I've looked at all these southern crops with twisted histories, but Okra is the one that I love best as a storyteller because it's a metaphor. Okra is the thing that binds together a great pot of gumbo. And gumbo is a dish that was popularized in Louisiana and it contained from the very start the flavors and influences and foods of all our ancestors. People from West Africa, from the Caribbean, and from Europe. And okra provides that mucilaginous goo that melds all those flavors together. So in my mind, gumbo tells us the truth about what the culture of the South really is. It's a mixture of everything our ancestors, all of our ancestors, brought here. So today on the Bitter Southerner podcast, we're going to school you on okra. Let's go first to a primary source in New Orleans, Louisiana. So you've been in the kitchen since what time this morning? 6.30. 6.30. And so you made the okra gumbo because you do that every Friday? Every Friday. I do okra gumbo every Friday. I do like that was the voice of Ms. Leah Chase. After many decades as the queen of Creole cuisine, we lost Ms. Chase back in June 2019 when she was 96 years old. Seven years before her death, she talked with Poppy Tooker, host of the public radio show, Louisiana Eats. I was rolling this morning, girl. I don't know where I got the energy from or where the knees worked good this morning. Now, Leah Chase was raised with that energy and love for food. 
Born in 1923, she was the eldest of 11 children, and her family lived in Madisonville, Louisiana, where they had a strawberry farm. You got up in the morning at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, we lived in Madisonville. The farm was like five miles out. Walked. Get out and pick those strawberries, 15 acres, come back home, get dressed, and go to school. It was tough work, but Miss Chase always remembered it as good work. When I was coming up, we were so very poor. And what I'm so proud of, we were so poor. My mother had all these children, but people were kind to us. And Ms. Chase remembers her family paying that kindness forward with food. You see, my dad would raise, he never raised just enough for us to eat because that wasn't right. You had to give the neighbors. And he was a stickler. We didn't have a penny, we didn't have that. But go give the neighbors this. That generosity was always reflected at her place, Dookie Chase's restaurant in the Tremaine neighborhood. Sometimes it was way bigger than just generosity of food and service. It was the kind of generosity that can change a nation because Leah Chase and her husband, Dookie Chase II, always allowed their restaurant's meeting rooms to be open at any time to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and other organizers of the Civil Rights Movement. She and her husband turned their little sandwich shop into a sit-down restaurant in 1946, and it quickly became a New Orleans icon. I went to Duke and Chase to get something to eat. The wizard looked at me and said, Ray, you shot! Look me nice early in the morning. Now that was the late, great Ray Charles going to Duke and Chase to get something to eat in his song, Early in the Morning. Ain't got nothing but the blue. Leah Chase's broad communal generosity came from her childhood. How her family always grew more food than it could eat because they knew others would need it. Leah says her family didn't have a freezer when she was young, so her parents would dry okra in the sun and preserve it, a technique that comes straight from Africa. My mother had flour sacks or white that you bleached out white and you we'd spread those out on the table in the sun put that okra out there every day it was sun-dried same thing with tomatoes sun-dried every day till they were dry enough to put in a bag and hold then you would take it and you would soak it in water to bring it back when you had to eat it miss chase also remembers gumbo being a part of her childhood in the summer when it was okra, you had okra gumbo. In the winter, you had whatever they had to make the gumbo with. If it was squirrels that your daddy shot or a rabbit, you had gumbo on Sunday. Your mother took great pains in making that gumbo on Sunday. You know, and you never make a little pot. Nothing for us was in a little pot. They had so many of us. You'd make this big pot of gumbo. Leah served her famous gumbo zerbs every week for more than 60 years at Dookie Chase's. And this gumbo has its roots in the Creole Catholic community. In a 2011 interview, Leah said her gumbo zerbs had a little bit of everything. We do that on Holy Thursday. You see, you know this town was predominantly Catholic. And that was the last meat day for Catholics. So you put all kinds of meat in that gumbo zerbs, stew. 
you put sausage, you put ham, you put chicken, all the works in that gumbo zab. So you had a good hearty meal. And that's, what you, that's the only thing you ate with some fried chicken on over Thursday. When Dookie Chase's reopened after Hurricane Katrina, her gumbo was the first thing that Miss Chase served. And in 2008, a certain presidential candidate named Barack Obama came in for her gumbo. And the first thing he did was put hot sauce on it. Big mistake. Here's Ms. Chase on the TV show Richard E. Grant's Hotel Secrets. I said, Mr. Obama, you just don't do that. You just don't put hot sauce in my gumbo. That's an important lesson when you go to Dookie Chase's. No hot sauce in her gumbo. But more important is the fact that Dookie Chase's was one of the South's first eateries to serve black and white people together. It was and still is a rare place of Southern community. You know, you got to make things work where you fit with everybody, white, black, everybody, you know. But, and, and that takes a little doing, you know, and that's my whole life trying to make the whole thing work. Leah Chase was telling the God's honest truth when she said that we can change the course of America over a bowl of gumbo and some fried chicken. You know, you can earn all the money in the world, darling, but if you don't make a difference in this world you live in, you're wasting your time. You've got to make a difference and help somebody else along the way. Around the dinner table, I sometimes get hung up on one of the prayers that people say. Bless this food and the hands that prepared it. Because I believe most folks don't think beyond the cooks in the kitchen when they think about the hands that prepared it. But Leah Chase helped anybody who ate in her restaurant to understand all of the hands. And at the center of her skill was that pod of mysterious origin, okra. So we named this episode with a phrase that we hope sums up what okra means to the South, an undeserved gift. So we're going back down to New Orleans and we're going deep into the okra field with our correspondent Shane Mitchell. Shane is a three-time James Beard Award-winning journalist, two of them I should note for pieces published by The Bitter Southerner. Let's go visit Shane now. Hey, Chuck. I'm so glad you're here. So I'm going to start with two questions. Uh, Number one, what do we actually know about the origins of okra in North America and beyond? And two, what is the connection between okra and gumbo? Well, what I'm going to say is uh, let's start by explaining that the word gumbo has the same root as okra. Hmm. The two words are actually from uh, West Africa, and it's they're just different dialects. Uh, so that's that's how that happened. And as far as uh, as far as how okra got here, my best guess is that it entered the New World in Brazil and made its way up through the Caribbean to Louisiana and ports along the Atlantic seaboard, basically anywhere Africans were sold into bondage. We share dishes with every place associated with the slave trade. Our okra soup and okra gumbo 
are similar to Afro-Brazilian cararu and Haitian sauce kalalu. And they are related to Senegalese supicanha and Nigerian ila asepa. All those words are essentially the same word, which is okra. You know, what your answer makes me realize is that all these apocryphal stories I've heard over the years about how okra got here are actually apocryphal. They're wrong, <laughs> or at least not confirmable. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Um, there there isn't any documentation, uh, but that's that's not unusual for the kind of foods that were coming over on slave ships. The same applies to yams, for instance. Huh. Um, so and and aki, which is another. Uh, fruit that was introduced over here. Okay, cool. Well, you know, I'm glad to know that it's okay for us not to know exactly where it came from. But, you know, one thing I can always trust in when you're doing a story about one of these foods for us is that you will dig very deeply into the history of the thing. And I know that while you were working on this story about okra that we published a few weeks ago, you also looked into what okra means outside the kitchen and outside the context of any particular dish like gumbo or anything else. And you visited a place in New Orleans, uh, a community garden that's tied to the Presbyterian Church, and they serve free weekly lunches there. And I was uh, really interested to learn that the, the place was called Okra Abbey. And could you explain that name to us? Yeah, Chuck. So uh, essentially, they chose the name Okra Abbey to sort of signify uh, its association with New Orleans. They chose okra because okra is such a an important foodway for the city, and they used the word abbey just to indicate that the place was meant to be a sanctuary for the neighborhood, which is a um, it's a neighborhood in the 17th Ward that was hit pretty hard by Katrina. Well, any place that's a place of sanctuary is a place that I'm interested in. So I'd sure love it if you could take us on a little bit of your visit there. Okay, let's go. Well, welcome to the neighborhood. I'm glad that you, uh, you came. And yeah, yeah. Well, every Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Anytime the doors are, anytime the gates are open. Okay. As well. Perfect. So one of the first people to meet me at Okra Abbey is its pastor, Hannah Quick. She greets people as they arrive for the weekly Wednesday lunch called Grace and Greens. And this is held in a, a small garden that they've put together that's basically on blacktop with a chain link fence right on a street in the neighborhood called Pigeon Town. And before we get to eat, Hannah leads everyone in saying grace. And this is kind of a reminder that we all have different gifts. Um, we're all blessed in different ways. Um, and we all kind of bring that to the table as a community. Um, Hannah says Okra Abbey fits the church's mission of providing community building rather than just service building. Because Pigeon Town is a historic black neighborhood with a great sense of pride. The Pigeon Town Steppers Social Aid and Pleasure Club is one of New Orleans' best second lines. But unfortunately, the neighborhood is also a food desert with only two corner groceries. 
So you could buy a po'boy sandwich there or a fried chicken dinner, but not much else. The stores don't even stock peanut butter. God of all good gifts, we give thanks and praise you. So in, in essence, Okra Abbey is helping by offering up fresh fruit and vegetables to the folks living right around the neighborhood. And may your kingdom be within us, reside here on earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. With that, let us eat. The folks who come to eat at Okra Abbey are encouraged to pass the food around the table. Hannah says that's part of building a community. It just kind of normalizes that we're eating like a, a family. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on. And that means we'll, you know, pass the, the broccoli down. And uh, you want to take this one? Sure. Thank you. It's hot. It's real what, hot. What is that? So this is a... Uh, Vegetable shepherd, shepherd's pie. Well, that one's hot. And the shepherd's pie smells amazing. I sit down and join about 20 other people eating together. I can't tell you I'm so hungry. Food's always good. Real good. Eat. Seeing these people come together in Pigeon Town is really encouraging because the neighborhood suffered so much after Hurricane Katrina. There are still houses boarded up, uh, but there is hope for the neighborhood. Here at Okra Abbey today, I can see longtime residents. Yes, yes, I've never eaten like that. I mean, and some newcomers. Isaiah Leonard Niles is an eighth grader in New Orleans. He's at Okra Abbey with his mom Rosa, and they recently moved in across the street. Isaiah says he loves the food here. I had the chicken, I've had, their salad is really good too, and they had good mashed potatoes. And I also had fish last time. I, f I think I preferred the fish, the fish is really good. I don't think I was here when the garden actually came in, but a lot of people started coming and eating food and everything, and building like a, a good community and everything. Everybody started knowing everybody. I got to play chess against somebody and everything. Uh, I was gonna play more chess, but I guess they're not here today, so I won't be able to do that. And then I have my orthodontist appointment afterwards, so. Oh, so how you, you get a floss before you go to your orthodontist after eating all that chicken? Yeah, yeah, I guess I am. I mean, I should. Uh-huh. A lot of the fresh veggies served for grace and greens comes right from the Abbey's garden, and that includes okra, which I can see blooming right near the chain-link fence. I want to point out that Okra Abbey is a garden that is built out of concrete and all the beds where all the fresh vegetables grow are, is made out of cinder blocks. So anytime it rains, there's no place for the water to go. So it's a pretty tough place to grow anything, whether it's tomatoes or corn or eggplant. But I can see all of that growing right here where I'm standing. Now the meals are prepared by a chef named Jason Goodenough and his kitchen crew preps everything for Wednesdays at Carrollton Market, his restaurant in the Garden District. One of the people dining today is Ricky Paul Bro, and he has childhood memories of his mother growing okra in their garden. Well, okra was a pod originated from Africa. 
Well, we grew okras. We saved our seeds. Just like we saved the, the, the chicken and the egg to, to keep multiplying. There's like everything else. You gotta be fruitful and multiply. You know, that's what the world works on. Karen Scott is an Okra Abbey regular who comes here for more than food. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's good for the soul, for the heart, for the mind, and I mean, you just feel better when you leave here. Because like I told uh, Pastor, I come for the word. The food is just a bonus. I come for the word because it actually keeps me stable during the week. It helps me, it encourages me. And the word that she gives us that day, I go at home and I study it. Karen tells Pastor Crick a little secret about her Okra Abbey visits. Can I give you, can I make one quick confession? When I pass the gate, I always steal a tomato. Oh, that's, that's, that's <laughs> Oh, wow. And I love my daughter even does. I say, we can't take too many, just a few of them. Reverend Quick doesn't have a pulpit. Instead, she has a tool shed and sees Okra Abbey as a way to answer her calling. A lot of times I'll talk about my role as like a neighborhood chaplain or like the whole neighborhood is my congregation that I, you know, have been called to serve. And and when we go out in the neighborhood, you know, they're, uh, you know, try to talk to people and assure them that like they're welcome here, even if they have uh, another church that they go to on Sundays, that this can still be a, a home for them as well. Amen to that. Thanks, Shane, for that visit to Okra Abbey in New Orleans. This is a Bitter Southerner podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Shane and I will be back right after a short break. DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome back to the Bitter Southerner podcast. We're here with Shane Mitchell. So to take all this back up, Shane, we've already established that gumbo is a great metaphor for Southern culture because it's a dish that holds the influences of all of our ancestors, not just the European ones, but the ones from Africa and the Caribbean and everywhere else. And, uh, you know, I heard that when you were in New Orleans, you ate a whole lot of okra and a lot of different gumbo. More than I ever want to eat again. <laughs> well, I, to be honest, uh, I, I went to Dookie Chase for a bowl of gumbo and to pay my respects to the late Ms. Chase. That's appropriate. Yes, absolutely. But that's not all. Uh, I ate okra all over for this story. Okra and ham canapes by a church lady in Charleston, South Carolina. Roasted okra by chef Matthew McClure of The Hive in Bentonville, Arkansas. Okra smeared on Creole cream cheese, tempera battered okra, cornmeal fried chunks, okra soup, okra fritters, okra remoulade, bindi masala, even raw pods picked right out of the field. Wow, that's a lot of okra. And you know, when I was a little kid, the first garden job my dad ever gave me was he handed me a paring knife and told me to go out in the okra patch and cut pods for dinner. I think that's one of the reasons it took me like 40 years to come back to gardening because I found it to be very itchy. But 
Well, that, yeah, I was going to ask if it was itchy. It was real itchy. It was real itchy, you know. But uh, And I haven't grown any in my backyard garden yet, but I may get to that next year. Uh, but I'm wondering about you. Did did you eat gumbo when you were growing up? I mean, was, was gumbo one of your family's standard dishes? No, uh, we didn't eat gumbo because my family's from the Carolina Low Country. Um, the closest would have been okra soup. But my mom made stewed okra and tomatoes. And I, let's just say, I'm not a fan. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it accentuates the mucilaginous nature of the thing past the point of tolerance. I Pretty snotty. Really. Yeah, it let's is. Be it's kind of like eating snot. Yeah, let's be honest. It's like eating snot. Uh, but so I don't want to p- turn people off to okra here, you know, completely because we've already established how important it is for us to eat think about now let's go back to to what you learned when you were in new orleans uh now on your visit to okra abbey you, you saw all you got to see okra as a part of a small christian community in one neighborhood but you also found out i understand that okra is tied in with faith in many more ways than that right oh yeah I mean, it's not just okra, but uh, you have to know that so many spiritual practices are tied to food, whether sacred and representational, like the Catholic sacrament representing the blood of Christ, or actual rituals involving food, like, um, you know, think about a day of the dead altar piled with treats departed loved ones might miss. And also, uh, particular to New Orleans, voodoo altars which have okra dishes favored by certain spirits, or which are which are called in the voodoo religion loa. Ah, okay. And, and I understand that you actually talked to a voodoo priestess about okra when you uh, were down in New Orleans? Yeah, well, uh, technically, Sally Ann Glassman is a mambo. Uh, that's, that's the word that's used in the voodoo religion for priestess. And uh, she says that voodoo is a gumbo religion, because mm-hmm. it borrows a little bit of this practice and a little bit of that faith. It's uh, what's known as a syncretic religion because it changes with the place and the time. And Sally Ann is not a conventional mambo by any means uh, because she was born in, in Maine. She's, she was originally Jewish. But she heard the calling and studied in Haiti uh, before opening her own house of worship in the Bywater District in in New Orleans. And for her, voodoo is about creativity and community. Just like the ingredients for gumbo, it's really highly personal. You know, voodoo is spicy. (laughs) It can be hot. It can be served cold. Um, And it's powerful. When I think about its sources that... It came out of slavery. Vodou gave people the the power to endure slavery and to transform the you know the overwhelmingly horrible experiences they were having in the physical world into strength and and creative genius. Um, in that way, as well, I think about something like gumbo, where you take all the ingredients that you find, whatever you got, and and simple and humble um, ingredients and transform them into something 
um, beyond what you started with and you add a whole lot of spice and you heat it up and and um, put a lot of heart into it and uh, it heals people it, it gives them strength it's sustaining one thing that, that really kind of caught my attention when I heard about your visit with Sally Ann in New Orleans um, was this sort of odd parallel between you know the religious upbringing that I had in in a really small Baptist church up in the mountains of North Georgia every two years we had a foot washing ceremony that was you know to uh, replicate and pay tribute to how Jesus washed his own disciples' feet. And so I was like sort of whacked in the side of the head when you told me that when you first met Sally Ann Glassman on St. John's Eve, she was preparing for a head-washing ceremony, which is kind of like a, a voodoo baptism and I want to start with some sound you recorded from the head washing ritual in New Orleans so let's take a listen now Shane tell us tell us what we're hearing here well, Chuck, this is a head-washing ceremony that takes place every year in the lobby of the International House Hotel around St. John's Eve. That's uh, the holiday that celebrates the, the nativity of John the Baptist. And there's always another uh, ceremony on the banks of Bayou St. John soon after that, uh, which historically uh, dates way back to the 1800s. The joyous noise you're hearing is being produced by the drummers who collaborate with Sally Ann and her fellow voodooists as they perform a headwashing where all the participants kneel in front of them and have their hair cleansed with this really fascinating and fizzy combo of cake crumbs and champagne and healing oils. Cake crumbs and champagne and healing oils. Wow. These headwashing ceremonies are dedicated to Marie Laveau, who was known as the voodoo queen of New Orleans during the late 19th century. And it was Marie Laveau who popularized the ceremony on Bayou St. John on St. John's Eve. Uh, Sally Ann says that Laveau is always on her mind when she's building an altar for a head washing. We honor Marie Laveau at these head washings and we use different foods that people have brought for her and we mix up this head wash and we, we do a whole ceremony to invoke Marie's spirit and you know, in the best possible case, she shows up and helps us do the head washings, but um, we wash people's heads. And, and head washings can be done anytime anybody wants to cool their head or anoint their head, make their head a sacred space for spirit to enter. So Sally Ann says uh, whenever she sets up an altar for Marie Laveau, she includes a lot of food. We have somewhat of a sense of what she likes and what she doesn't like. It's a lot like you're inviting your grandmother to dinner, 
and you want to serve foods that your grandmother likes and you don't want to serve things that are going to give her the wrong message and make her feel disrespected or mm -hmm. that you didn't actually want her there. And so for Marie, um, we've gotten the impression that she likes Creole foods. Uh, she liked elegant Creole foods. <laughs> and so we have petty fours on the altar and fancy Milagro chocolates and and also, you know, a, a hefty supply of Court rum and champagne. Marie Laveau's love of Creole foods would have included gumbo, which she reportedly brought to condemn prisoners as an act of compassion. That was her way of giving back to community. Well, you know, it's just become clear to us on this show that no matter how Southerners put okra together in a dish or a ceremony, we are taking a thing that was brought here when we were all kept strictly apart and we're using it now to bring us all together. You know what? I've just thought of this, Chuck, but it, it's, it's just like okra binds us together. And it's just like that in your pot of gumbo. So to our listeners, if, if y'all aren't hungry by now, there's not a whole lot else we can do to help you. Uh, I just want to thank you, Shane, for that outstanding reporting and for doing this entire series for us. You can read that series of Shane's stories at The Bitter Southerner, and we'll have links to all of them specifically in the show notes of this episode. That's it for today's episode. Our producer is Sean Powers. Josephine Bennett edits the show. And one last big thank you to Shane Mitchell for all her amazing reporting on this episode and her beautiful writing in our pages, but mostly for investing so much of her time to give our readers a genuine wealth of essential learning over the years. Additional assistance today came from Thomas Walsh of WWNO Radio in New Orleans and Poppy Tooker and Joe Schreiner of the public radio show Louisiana Eats. Ever South, our theme song was written by Patterson Hood and performed by his band, The Drive-By Truckers. We heard additional music today from New Orleans musician John Roniger. We thank them all. And if you like the Bitter Southerner podcast, please review and rate it on Apple Podcasts, even if you actually listen to the show somewhere else. That helps us make sure new folks get to hear our twang. The Bitter Southerner podcast is a co-production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and the Bitter Southerner magazine. You can access more from each episode at gpb.org slash podcasts. I'm Chuck Reese, and my three instructions remain constant. Hug more necks, abide no hatred, and always do what you love with who you love. Maybe next time, do it over a bowl of gumbo. <laughs>